Hi, this is Henry Gross, and I am the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. I hope you're ready for another edition of On Screen and Beyond, because we've got a good one coming your way. This is episode 549 of On Screen and Beyond. I'm your host, Brian Zimmerich, and this is the show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, it is part one of our interview with Henry Gross. And now, of course, Henry was uh, part of the founding group of Shanana. He was one of the founding members, and also he had a top uh, a top ten hit back in 1976, and it was called Shannon, and a great song. And uh, also, he was uh, part of the Road Company production of Broadway musical of Pump Boys and Dinettes, and uh, he's continued to make music throughout his life, so he's got a lot of stuff, met a lot of people, and we are going to hear a lot about Henry Gross coming up on the next two episodes of On Screen and Beyond, and it is our summer movie preview, where we have part one, which will cover May and June, and then in next week's show, we will have part two of our summer movie preview, and our interview of part two with Henry Gross, of course. But uh, the summer movie preview will have the um, uh, months of July and August to come your way as far as what's coming out in theaters or a mixture of theaters and on streaming and, you know, however they're going to be doing it. So (laughs) it's just so many. And, of course, we have to tell you that uh, something... Uh, could change because they keep bouncing things around. Of course, you know that. Uh, if you listen to On Screen or Beyond every week, we talk about that. But uh, a lot of things coming our way as far as the summer movie preview. And Henry Gross coming up in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. But what do you say? Let's get right into it. It is time now for the summer movie preview part one. And we're going to look at what's coming your way as far as remakes coming your way this summer. Right here on On Screen and Beyond. Remake Madness as far as coming your way this summer for our summer movie preview. Cruella retells the 101 Dalmatians villain story. And that comes your way on May 28th. And uh, for May and June, as far as the summer movie preview, that's it for remakes. So uh, that's it. Now let's find out what's coming your way for the first half of our summer movie preview for upcoming new movies. Upcoming new movies for the first half of the summer movie preview. It looks like director Guy Ritchie's Wrath of Man, starring Jason Statham, arrives on May 7th. May 14th, Amy Adams and Gary Oldman will star in The Woman in the Window. And on May 21st, Ryan Reynolds stars in Free Guy. This moves into theaters. And Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead with Dave Bautista will be hitting theaters on May 21st. And Luca from Disney brings a new animated film to theaters on June 18th. That's it for upcoming new movies on On Screen and Beyond for our summer movie first half preview of the summer movies. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming away as far as sequels? This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Sequel City, well, as far as the first half of the summer movie preview on May 14th, Spiral from the Book of Saw comes to theaters. Now, the key word on that one is the Book of Saw. Saw, that's the key word, because that is a continuation of the Saw saga, which uh, just keeps rolling them out. And uh, that comes your way, like I said, in theaters on May 14th. 
And A Quiet Place 2 continues, and it'll be in theaters on May 28th. And The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, will be hitting theaters on June 4th. And on June 16th, it's The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard that will be coming to theaters on, uh, like I said, June 16th. And F9 continues the story of The Fast and the Furious as it uh, makes its way into theaters on June 25th. And that's it for Sequel City and uh, for the first half, of course, of the summer movie preview that we're looking at here at On Screen and Beyond. And second half will be coming up in the next episode of On Screen and Beyond. So uh, get ready for that. That'll give you July and August movies. And uh, there are a lot of uh, sequels. I mean, <laughs> that's most of the summer, believe me or not. You know, that's uh, that's the big thing. And uh, there are a couple more uh, remakes coming our way. But that's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we will take a look at uh, TV and entertainment time right here on On Screen and Beyond. <laughs> TV and Entertainment Time, well, just want to give you one thing this week. It's a very important thing, too. Barry Boswick, Linda Pearl, Gail O'Grady, John Schneider, Max Gale Jr., Donnie Most, and Renee Taylor are just a few of the names of the people who will be involved in this project. And this is coming up Saturday, May 8th at 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific Time and, uh, and 8 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can catch a thing called Viral Vignettes. Now, you can catch that at ViralVignettes.com. That's V-I-R-A-L-V-I-G-N-E-T-T-E-S.com. And what that is, it's going to be many actors will be performing short comedies, uh, you know, like uh, on FaceTime or, uh, or Zoom or whatever they're doing it on. And it's a very special one-time encore of viral vignettes and it's an opportunity for viewers to contribute to the actors fund to help actors who need financial assistance during the hard times that we're in and if you'd like you can support uh, that and it supports everyone in film theater tv music opera and also radio and dance and uh, you might want to check that out it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, you know it'll help some people out if you can if you're if you're able to do that yourself and, uh, you know, not every actor is making millions of dollars. There's a lot of people involved in the production and everything that aren't. And uh, the uh, Actives Fund will help those people out. So if you'd like to watch that, you can check it out. We'd appreciate it. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we have singer-songwriter Henry Gross joining us for part one of our interview with him. He gave us Shannon and a whole lot more. He was part of the founders of uh, Chanana, the group, and uh, just uh, so much stuff that he did. And we're going to find out all about it. Henry Gross is next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Today's guest on On Screen and Beyond has been playing music his whole life. At the age of 13, he was playing music at the World's Fair in New York, and at 18, he was a founding member of the group Shanana. In 1976, he had a top 10 hit on the Billboard charts with Shannon, and in the 80s, he performed with the Road Company production of the Broadway musical Pump Boys and Dinettes. He continues to make music from his show, one hit wanderer to his latest release, Too Clever for My Own Good. It's Henry Gross. Henry, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Thanks. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Finally, <laughs> I, uh, for those of you that don't know, don't, don't, no, I had nothing to do today but to do this show, and I was late. It slipped my mind. I was walking the dogs, and I'm sorry. What did I forget? Oh, I can't remember. I had to do something. And this goes to show you that these things, doing these things at night is not normal. I mean, I'm used to doing them in the morning and afternoon, but it's on me. Here we are, folks. Here I am. Well, Henry, I got to say, uh, I think it's a fair statement to say that music is in your blood, correct? It is, but, but I understand there's an antidote for it now. <laughs> and, 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 and the CDC says they're going to have it 
they're going to make it make it available very soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, Henry, um, I, we'll get to your, your your latest album in a little bit, but going through all the music that you've done over time, and you have, you, I mean, Shannon is is a fantastic song. It's it's I, I've always loved that song. Thank you. But um, I noticed in your albums, a lot of your songs have humor in them. Do you? Yes, it's true. My dad, my dad was a, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, and I guess before I even get into my dad, in my in the neighborhood I grew up in, if you, basically it was a tough neighborhood, and it, and if you were funny. If you made, the, if a guy was going to knock you around, but if you made him laugh, they go, "Ah, Lee Maloney's funny," you know. <laughs> so everybody tried. Everybody was always a wise guy, you know. My neighbor was very much like, kind of like the movie The Bronx Tale, only in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And you know, people were funny, and it was, you know, it was low down kind of funny. I wouldn't say it was high level humor, <laughs> but but people were clever, and they and there were people, you know, so many great comedians came from Brooklyn, and there's, you know, in the forties and fifties. And I understand it. It was really a. It, it was comedy. Was it was to survive? I mean, look, the New York Yankees were the class of of, of baseball for years and years. But what do they call the Brooklyn Dodgers? The bums. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> we would have. We would have bums. So, you know, it, it was just a way of survival that you would you would constantly make jokes mm-hmm. and and you know take the Mickey out of each other. Yeah. You know, I, I went when I would go with my dad, who also had a very dark sense, a very kind of almost British sense of humor, you know, very dry, very dark. And, I, you know, we used to visit. His father had passed away. And so we'd visit, you know, my grandfather's grave, mm-hmm. who I never knew him. He died before I was born. And uh, and we, as we'd walk across the cemetery, always the same way, we'd pass, you know, those big limestone mausoleum buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my father would always point to those buildings and say, those guys really know how to live. (laughs) (laughs) It was very dark, but very funny. Yeah. You know, and so I was always trying to be funny to get his attention and affection. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's nothing he liked more than a great laugh and nothing made him more proud of me than than when I, when I, you know, when I made him laugh. So I started learning every joke. And then, as you said, I played at the World's Fair, my first band when I was 13. And it was the New Jersey Pavilion. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the first times I got a laugh on stage because we were doing this song by Jerry and the Pacemakers called Ferry Cross the Mersey. Of course, yeah. And Big song. to the delight of the crowd and the chagrin of my bandmates, I sang, So Ferry to New Jersey. And they got so, they drove the guys nuts and I kept doing it. <laughs> and the audience loved it. So, I, you know, I liked getting a laugh. Yeah. And then when I was 14, we started, my, uh, you know, I, I had another band. It's, I mean, I don't know how long you want to hear this nonsense, but I mean, my sister invite, had a friend and she invited a band to rehearse in my parents' tiny little basement. It was like a, I don't know, 10 by 10 basement or something. Mm-hmm. And so there was, I, I, I woke up one Saturday morning, I heard this noise coming out. What, where is this? And it was coming from my house. So I went downstairs. And there was a band down there, and these guys were great-looking guys. And the, the the driveway, and in front of the house was full of really nice, cool cars, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, and these guys were playing, and I heard them playing, and and they, you know, they were terrible, <laughs> but they looked good, and they had cars. And I was only, you know, just turned fourteen, and so I was sitting on the little steps going down to the basement, and I was listening to them play. And I just kept laughing, and I said, "What are you laughing at?" I said, "Well, you you don't know how to play these songs, do you?" <laughs> and they said, "Like you do?" And I said, "Yeah." They said, "Oh yeah, let's hear." So I played I played the songs, and they went, "Oh wow, we had it all wrong." So they said, "You want to join the band?" And they were awful. The band <laughs> I was in was better, but they had cars, so and they had gigs at you know college fraternities and stuff. So that was it. Now I was portable, and then we in the summertime. We went up and played in the Catskill Mountains, and that was an education, can, and that was a comedy education. I can imagine because everybody was nuts up there, <laughs> you know, and all the comedians played up there. So when we, when you'd be there, you know, you'd see a show, and uh, 
and you know, you know, I remember one night the guy who was booking us said to me, "You, you with the big mouth, you want to see how this? That was me. You want to see how this is really done? You know, come see Billy Eckstein's show tonight." So he put us, on, he put a couple of us on the list, me and someone else, on the list to go see Billy Eckstein, the great jazz singer. Mm-hmm. And the comedian didn't show up. And he, t- you know, and he says to me, "You, you're so funny. Go out there and be funny for five minutes." I, my comic didn't show up, so I went out there, you know. And to say I bombed would be too kind. <laughs> you know, they didn't even know I was on. I remember a little woman looking up in the front table with a mouth full of food looking at me and saying, you're a nice boy. You don't have to be funny for us. <laughs> a brutal crowd, you know. I mean, it was just, it was just unbelievable. And they, they were, you know, so I, I thought this comedy thing, it's fun backstage, but it's not. It didn't make me happy like music did. You know, my mom was a was a good musician. She was a schooled musician. She was uh, in a lot of choruses. She even even sang briefly in the Metropolitan Opera Chorus. Wow! And uh, and she was an accomplished pianist. Like she could open these, you know, Beethoven things, the sonatas, and just play them. We read them. I don't. Want, I mean, it's, you know, there's like a hundred. It looked like fly stuff on the paper, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, she could just play it. Well, I took piano lessons, and at one of the little recitals, there was someone there turning the pages and realized that I was playing stuff that was on the next page. So I had just memorized it. I wow. didn't. I never. I never got with the learning, with the sight reading, and all that. Huh. And uh, anyway, yeah. we're going off on tangents here, but but that was interesting too because my mom could play anything. She could read any music instantly. But if you played her, if you wanted her jam in a little blues thing, she couldn't. If it wasn't written, she couldn't play it. Hmm, wow. And it's an, you know, it's an interesting thing, because you think about Paul McCartney doesn't read music either. Yeah. Nor does Stevie Wonder. Yeah. You know, now, I guess guys like Burt Bacharach did. And a lot of people, you know, do. You know, a lot of people do read music, but a lot of people create without knowing that. Yeah. If you hear the music in your head. Exactly. You know, yeah. Roger Cook. Roger Cook is one of the great songwriters in the world, and I write with him all the time. And he's in every songwriter hall. He wrote Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress, and oh. You've Got Your Troubles and I've Got Mine. Yes. I'd like to teach the world to sing. You could go on for an hour. Yeah. And he doesn't. He, he writes on a baritone ukulele. Huh. Jeez. So, <laughs> you know, it, there's a lot of ways to do this thing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> anyway, I think I went too far, but the comedy was really self-preservation. And I think if you hang around with comedians, you'll find that they might not be the happiest people in the world. I think that's you know, true. There's a, you know, someone was saying this on uh, on, on a podcast of uh, Gilbert Gottfried that I saw. He was a guy from Mad Magazine. Um, I'm forgetting his name, and and he was talking about how you always see with actors you see the sad face, the mask, and the happy face, mm-hmm. and that you know comedy and tragedy are brothers and they're and they're very close together yeah, yeah. you know yeah yeah it's it, because it's funny it, it, you mentioned that i i've had a lot of different actors on the uh mm-hmm. on the show and they, a lot of them tell me they're they're introverts but you know you we don't think of them as introverts because they're so out there when they're 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 on it you know <laughs> yeah no it, you know that's right you people you know it's it, people always think they know people because they've watched their shows. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's like, oh yeah, you know, you've seen this guy act in a movie, and you think he, you think you know who he is. And people always do that. They, yeah. they very often make that. You know, they make that jump, like they know you. They watch the whole series, and you know, you're, I've seen him play ten times. I know him. Right. You know, <laughs> and, and the, with some people, I have to say, you know, a lot of people like they do an act. Mine's not an act. I mean, I just I write my songs. You know what they are. They have elements of of me in all of them, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I generally write about things I've lived. Yeah, yeah. You know, some people write it like a play, you know. But the play that you know, I've written some plays. I mean, I wrote a comedy called New Orleans, New Orleans that that no one's seen, and hopefully it will happen one day. I wrote it with a guy from New York, who's a great playwright, a guy called Ed Greenberg. But um, I wrote the music to it and 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 co-wrote the book. My one-hit Wanderer show is a 90-minute scripted show, and that's about my life. So most of the music I write is, you know, 
what do you write about? You write what you know. Right, yeah, yeah. So how you know, did people... Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, you know, people assume, you know, you, you know you've you gone to see somebody, you don't know what they're like. Exactly, yeah. You don't know what people are like in the movies, you know, you don't, you, you just don't know, and who cares? Right. You know, <laughs> the fact is, you only need to know them. You know, I don't need to know if W.C. Fields was really a bad drunk. I I adore his comedy. Right. You know? yeah. yeah. And so I take it at that, and that's as far as it goes. Yeah. This is why it's always it's always a dilemma for me when people that are supposedly entertainers become, um, you know, become political um, geniuses. You know, because half the audience will then hate you. Right. <laughs> and so, you, but you know, it is a dilemma because as a citizen, you want to have the right to say what you think and you should have it. Mm-hmm. So I guess you just have to take whatever comes with it. Yeah. I don't think you asked me that question, but it is a, it's an int- it ties into what, how people are, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I but, mean, if people disagree with you, if, if they, if, if especially these days, if they disagree with your politics, well, then they're going to go, I don't want to see, it'll go blackball you from this. Who cares? I know. You know? I, I don't, I never could understand that. You know, <laughs> I mean, you, you love somebody, their music or their acting or whatever, but the second you find out whichever way they lean doesn't, you know, doesn't make any difference, but it, to hate the person and not want to watch them or, or listen to them anymore, it, it, it makes no sense. Well, it's all part of the picture, I guess. If you, you know, if it, it's the same thing. I mean, you can take it, um, you know, um, if Adolf if Adolf Hitler made made great movies, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you don't really want to watch them, right? Well, but, yeah, that... <laughs> you know, but it is it is complicated, and 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 I guess you, you know, at this point in time, I guess nothing. It doesn't really matter anymore. It always, you know, it's always funny to me when I see people arguing about, you know, sports mm-hmm. at this point in time. And I know people enjoy sports, and I know, you know, it takes people spend their lives trying to get good at it, and they, you know, when they succeed, it's a wonderful thing. But in, in terms of what's going on in the world, I mean, it's all kind of irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. To me, you know, I don't really care who who wins the game. Yeah, growing up, you know? growing up as a kid, did you being in Brooklyn? Were you a big Yankees fan? Actually, I I, I like the Yankees and the Dodgers. And the Giants a little. We had three major league teams when I was right. Kid. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the Dodgers was a big awakening for me, and it and it had to do with everything in my life because, you know, you realize that something you love could just simply be taken from you by the corporations. How, mm. <laughs> boy, that that's certainly a very appropriate thought for today. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. I mean, where corporations stop other opinions from the e- appearing. Yeah, you know. I mean, this is a very interesting thing to be thinking about on the day that Project Veritas was, you know, that uh, James O'Keefe was taken off Twitter. I know. <laughs> how, how, how American is that? Yeah, I know. How, Jeez. You know, how un-American. Yeah. How unhopeful for the future of, you know, of, of the country if things like that are allowed to stand. Mm. So, you know, it's just wrong. I don't care what side of the political fence you are. Right. Everybody yeah. should get to speak. Everybody. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. You can change the channel, but people should be able to speak. But uh, that's not what um, the uh, owner owner class wants to do anymore. So we'll see where it all shakes loose. We'll see how it shakes out. All um, right. Yeah. Or 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 at my age, we won't. But but whichever <laughs> way it rolls, whichever way it rolls, you know, I'm hoping that uh, people come to the senses on all that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, getting back to your music. When you uh, you hit eighteen and now you're founding a group, Shanana, how how did that come about? Okay, well, I played with bands all through the seventies, and I was playing in, in bands with. Uh, I had a band with a guy that was three years older than me in high school. He was like a senior when I was a sophomore or something, mm-hmm. and we wound up in a band together. And his name was Joe Whitkin, and he went to Columbia. I went to Brooklyn College. And at Columbia, he was in a group with another guy, Elliot Kahn, who was his roommate, and a guy called Peter Engel. And uh, and I ended up joining that group, 
and it was called Orogeny, which is, uh, these were very, very bright people at Columbia. Orogeny to O-R-O-G-E-N-Y turns, turns out to be the forming of the crust on the Earth following an earthquake. It sounded <laughs> dirty at first, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, these were guys, these guys were very, yeah, it did sound dirty, but it, but it, had, it wasn't. You know, yeah. These guys are very bright. Anyway, we were playing all these folk clubs in Greenwich Village, you know, like Dirty's Folk City and, you know, Gaslight or whatever the names were. You know, we played a Night Owl Cafe. We played at a lot of places. And they were in a glee club at Columbia, or at least a couple of them, where Wiccan was, Joe Wiccan and uh, Elliot Cohen. And they were in this thing called the Kingsman, which was kind of like the Yale whiff and poof. You know, they got together and sang songs and... But they, anyway, so one night at one of their little recitals, they did, um, I wasn't there, but I think they did Little Darling by the Gladiolas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, da, la, 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 Little Darling. Yeah. And anyway, um, the reaction from the kids there with a couple hundred people was phenomenal. So, as fate would have it, the older brother of one of them witnessed this and had a brainstorm. You grease your hair, you wear 50-style clothes, you do a concert of old doo-wop and rock songs. You put three guys up front in gold lame suits. Mm-hmm. So they did it. And the concert was billed as Grease Under the Stars and the Glory That Was Grease. And they put up all these things around Columbia. Now, I was invited. The guy said, hey, come down, you'll love this. It's going to be a really, it's going to be a riot. So, you know, they thought 500 people, three, 400, 500 people might be there. It was going to be outdoors on a Friday night, I think it was, at the, on the, you know, on the little quadrangle at Columbia, on the steps of Lowell Library, the band was going to set up, you know, on the, kind of like the uh, landing on the top of the steps. Mm-hmm. And so they thought, you know, they'd have a small couple anyway. It was a beautiful night. And these posters were all over the school, and it seemed like the whole, everybody in that part of New York City showed up. Oh, there were thousands of people, and it was like, it was like bedlam. It was Beatlemania broke out. Wow. You know, it was just unbelievable. The Kingsman was, was doing, you know, it was a mess. But, you know, the show was a mess. But but the professors and students were dancing naked in the fountain. Oh, people were freaking out. And I guess the next morning, one of the Kingsmen, um, you know, probably the preppiest one, quit in disgust. And uh, they asked me to join because they needed a guy who could really sing and play guitar. Mm-hmm. So I joined, and then together we kind of worked out this uh, love letter to the fifties called Shanana. I mean, now uh, how it got popular is a whole other thing. You know how we we went down in my, my in my Volkswagen, a bunch of us stuffed in like when college kids stuffed in a phone booth, and we drove down to the Steve Paul scene, which was the coolest club in new york states all the rock stars hung out there till six seven in the morning jamming hmm. and the word we we just i was outside waiting you know with the motor running and three or four of them went in to see if they could get us you know we didn't know anything so we just went to try and get a job there you know to yep. play yeah and the guy we the only thing we that we had was the review from the columbia student newspaper of the greece festival which was an unbelievable review. And so the guy who was Teddy Slatus, actually, he went on to manage Johnny Winter and Edgar Winter. He worked for Steve Paul, and he ran the club at that time. And he hired us, and then we did a show one night, and the place went mad. And, uh, you know, we worked there with Dr. John, and uh, uh, what's his name? Um, um, Baby Scratch, Slim Harpo, Scratch My Back. And we did a show with him. I mean... Dr. John was phenomenal. We worked with uh, Matt when he had Dr. John and the Night Tripper. Mm -hmm. And Alice Cooper was down there. Eric Clapton was there. Jimi Hendrix was there, who I knew. Wow. We had a a mutual friend from before, and I had spent an evening with him earlier. So when he saw me there, he he was, hey, man, you know, it was like really great. You know, and I couldn't, I was, you know, I I was out of my mind. Rick Derringer came down and jammed with us. Jeez. I mean, Rick is, (laughs) you know phenomenal musician oh yeah he was for those of you that might not know rick derringer if you didn't know his solo career with songs like rock and roll hoochie coo and free ride and all that he uh he was the lead guitar guitarist of the and singer of the mccoys yeah 
who had, you know, hang on, floopy and fever, and, you know, I can't remember all the other ones, but they were very, Rick's a great guy, and I'm an amazing musician. Hmm. And uh, I ended up running into Eric Clapton years later, actually only a few years ago, three, four years ago in England. Um, and he uh, he remembered all that. Yeah. <laughs> he remembered jamming there with us. Really? Which is great. It was really nice. Yeah. So I was very lucky, you know, yeah. because Sean and I introduced me to the music business, the real music business, and how it worked in 1969 when it was just really in a great place. And so I, you know, part of the reason, I mean, because I, I would travel around the country playing and I would see groups playing in holiday inns that were better bands than half the bands that had hit. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were just great, but they weren't getting anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, they, one guy asked me one time, you know, during a break on one of those things, man, how'd you get it going? How'd you get a record deal? And I said, well, I grew up in New York City and the best, the best gig in New York City was a record deal. And you're in, you know, someplace in, you know, some, somewhere, you know, little town in Texas. I said, the best gig there is the Holiday Inn and you've got it. Yeah. Jeez. You know, you got to get out of there, man. Yeah. Huh. You know, because the ladder only goes so high. Yeah. And that's, really what it was all it was was the people that lived in LA or New York were in the media or Chicago to a degree were in media centers mm-hmm. and it's just the luck of the draw yeah that that happened yeah but um so anyway so that's so the, the group you know kind of was happening you know and Bill Graham then was introduced to us we played the Fillmore East and destroyed that place I mean I could talk about this for I could write a book on that <laughs> and then we went to California and played in the Fillmore West and, um, and then the Woodstock Festival. Yeah, I was going to ask which, you about which, that. Which was great for us. And, and I think it was Jimi Hendrix that got us into the festival. Really? Because he was a big fan. And, uh, you know, he was, he was a, you know, just a, a great guy. Yeah. He really was. He was really, really bright. I mean, of course he was. I mean, look how he, the music he made. Oh, yeah. But he was, he was uh, you know, at least in my experience with him he was an absolutely super guy and you know i really enjoyed i was really really lucky to have spent you know the the whole morning of which you know a lot of time in the morning of the woodstock festival with him and also before he went on because sean and i went on right before he did Hmm. at seven o'clock in the morning we went on and he was he was there and uh you know i was drinking with him in the morning early morning when we finally got there and I was drinking with him before he went on, so you know it was uh, it was it was great, yeah. and um, you know it was just really an opportunity. I was twenty feet from Joe Cocker when he when he did his set. Wow! I heard a little help from my friends, and in fact, I saw some something online on YouTube, and I was looking at it, and I called my wife over, and I, it was a picture of Jimi Hendrix on stage, and I said, "You see that guy over there?" And she went, "That's you." Because it was finally, I found a shot taken from the side of the stage, the opposite where I was. Yeah. Huh. So there's a picture of me watching. You know, I'm one of four or five people standing there watching Jimmy from just at the other from the, the side of the stage. Jeez. Yeah. And so it was great. I mean, he was great. And you know, of course, I got there Sunday morning, and you know, Cocker was the first guy up in the afternoon, and uh, then then it rained all day. Mm-hmm. The concert didn't really start again until I think it was like around midnight. Wow! If I remember of blood, sweat, and tears, I remember being standing right, you know, right behind Steve Katz, and then Crosby, Stills, and Nash came out. I don't want to say too much about those guys, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, people were everybody was different. Of course, I met Alvin Lee there, who became a friend of mine years later. So the, it was an interesting uh, and really amazing thing to experience. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And you were, the, you were the youngest person to play at Woodstock, correct? 
Yeah, I was. You know, it's not like it was an accomplishment. You know, it was an, an accident of birth. No, but still, that's <laughs> you know, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, I started. You know, as I say, I, I started very young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it was really to, to please my mom. You know, my dad was a pharmacist, and my mom was a musician. So, I mean, a match made in heaven to produce a rock and roller. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think about it. Yeah. So you know, I, I really did the music to please my mom because she kind of gave it gave up her musical aspirations when she married my dad so you know and uh well, so i you know she was it made her super happy yeah and my dad wanted me to be a doctor but that's a whole you know <laughs> i mean the music thing once once you have tasted of that at that time and place i don't know how i would feel today yeah you know knowing that because back then you know about a a thousand to fifteen hundred records were released a year by all the labels, major labels put together. You know, by all the known record companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think three or four thousand records hit Spotify every, every day of the week. <laughs> you know, so yeah. you know the, the it's, it's a different world today. I don't know. Yeah. You know, you'd have to really want it. You know, people do it. Yeah. Uh, but times have changed, you know. I mean, when I was doing it at a hotel, you know, if we wanted to get a bunch of guys and get a hotel room and crash on the floor, it was eighteen dollars. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, now they, you know they're, they're, they 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 still pay the same money to the band, <laughs> but uh, you know the hotel's two hundred. You know, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny um, talking about Woodstock. Um, quite a few years ago, I had Wavy Gravy on. I don't know if you know. Yeah, sure. You, I, of course, man. Yeah, he, and, he was there trying to counsel everybody about the, uh, yeah, you know, the, the the brown acid. Now you know. Yeah, and I mean, I'll tell I you that it, was I an did... experience. <laughs> okay. I, I met him in I met him in San Francisco. <laughs> he, wow, that's the that's the place to meet him, I guess. But you know, I, I did not meet him at Woodstock, but but I do I did do a couple of shows on the uh, on the fiftieth anniversary of Woodstock, and I did tell the audience not to eat the brown metamucil so (laughs) things had changed yes (laughs) but but anyway so that's what happened there and i need but but the the thing that for me that came out of woodstock was that watching Jimi hendrix do the star spangled banner from an inch away Mm. you know uh i knew at that moment that i was leaving shana and i did leave a couple two three more whatever it was i was Myself and Joe Witkin and, uh, and Dave Garrett was we left. We were the earliest ones to leave, and I left really because um, he was making. I watched Jimmy, and he was making music that only he could make. Yeah, and, and I thought this the shine of nothing was all fine and good, but it was like being in a, in a show where you were never going to be yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody could do what I did in Shannon. Maybe they couldn't have sung the high parts like I did, but they, you know, they got other guitar players to play, and the audience didn't miss that. You know, like BB King said, "You can't miss what you ain't never had." So, if they didn't hear the guy singing "Remember Then" in the original key, they didn't miss it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. and they got other good singers like Johnny Cantardo was a great singer that joined later on. So you know, there were always people to get to be in, in a basically what be, started out as a. Uh, kind of a unique innocent thing and it turned into more of a more of an off-broadway kind of thing yeah, yeah. and then the tv show they started bringing props on stage and stuff and it, I, I didn't want any part of that kind of stuff yeah but you know i wanted to be in a rock band and when i was in shanana we were basically a really wild rock band yeah and it was and it was a lot of fun yeah and and so the group evolved and they're still working they still do some shows every year and uh and some guys, a couple of the guys, made it a career. Don York and Jocko Marcelino, the drummer, mm-hmm. they made it made it their life's work to be in Shanana, and that's you know. So, um, but I I knew I had to move on, so I did, yeah. and I left the band. I had a lot of opportunities to rejoin, and never wanted to because uh, I just wanted to see how. At that time, it wasn't an unrealistic goal. I mean, they were signing solo artists, right. And I thought, well, I can, you know, I can figure out this songwriting thing. I worked really hard on it, and I wound up. Uh, I mean, I'm, 
you know, this is really free. I could write a volume on this uh, funny stuff, but um, that took place. But I was trying to get a deal, and I was playing every you know, dumpy dive I could get a gig in <laughs> for $10 a night, and, um, you know, wound up meeting some amazing people along the way, like Tim Harden. I played some shows in, in this little kind of club, I forget the name of it, on, uh, you know, up near Columbia University, and he was playing with this uh, Warren Bernhardt, a genius-level keyboard player. It was called Bernhardt and Harden, and I played some nights with them and it was got to, and I got to know uh, I got to know Tim Harden who you know was one of my one of my favorite songwriters and it was just a, you know a, a, I found him to be a great guy you know I know he had problems with uh, you know substance abuse but he was a, a great talent yeah both a singer and just a remarkable uh, person so I got to meet starting to meet all these kind of people and finally I got um I got an audition. I thought the guy wanted to sign me at Capitol Records to do a solo album. And he, uh, he ended up, um, sadly passing away of cancer. And he was going to sign me. And he was a lovely guy. He was a songwriter. And, uh, he and his brother wrote Rambling Rose and that King Cole hit. And they yes. also wrote, uh, Graduation Day. That was a huge record for the Letterman. And inspired mm-hmm. uh, Brian Wilson. Yeah. And anyway, uh, his name was uh, Noel Sherman, and he and his brother Joe wrote those songs. And so Noel was going to sign me when he and he got very ill. So that didn't happen. And the next thing, I just kept going and going, you know, and it went on and on. And I so I finally ABC Dunhill Records. I, I I remember I was playing a club. This is what happened. And a lawyer called Stephen Mazarski. He actually he was in, he was in uh, Brown. He was going to Brown, and it was and he eventually went to Rutgers Law. But he was at Brown University, and he knew a lawyer called Robert Wax, who was at Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, which was like one of the biggest law firms in New York, mm-hmm. Arthur Goldberg's law firm. And uh, Robert Wax was an entertainment lawyer at that firm, and Steve Masarski brought him down to see me play. At some club called Ungano's on the west side of Manhattan. I think it was in the 70s or the 80s. Like on Ninth Avenue or something, if I'm remembering. It's somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And he loved my, and he loved what I was doing. And he said to come see him in his office. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go see him. So I went to see Robert Wax. And I remember walking into those law offices and he says, Henry, come in, sit down. I'm so glad you're here. And I want to like to talk to you about what we can do. And I said, look, man, I don't want to be rude, but I got to go. He said, what do you mean? We have an appointment. Where are you going? I said, look, I can't afford you. <laughs> I said, I'm going to walk out of here and you're going to give me a bill and I'm going to be your indentured servant. servant. <laughs> so I'm going to leave now, <laughs> you know what I mean, before this goes where I think it's going. And he said, no, and he laughed. And he laughed like crazy. I'm not charging you for this. He said, Take it easy. You know, because I, mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like 18 and 19 mm-hmm. and I've just walked into this you know, it's like I just walked into the White House and I'm thinking, I'm, there's no free lunch, you know? <laughs> this guy's this guy's got the clock running. Right. <laughs> I'm going I'm to have to give him my car. You know, I had, I had an old Volkswagen. I'm going to have to give him my VW Bug. But anyway, he was great. So we went around to all these companies and they all said no. <laughs> and he kept believing in me. And he finally took me to see this guy called Howard Gilman who was an East Coast A&R guy, or actually he was in New York, but he, he grew up in New York, but he was working for ABC Dunhill, which is a label that had Ray Charles. And oh, yeah, Mamas it was and a Pop, huge label noise. back then. Yeah, yeah, they had Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds, yep. and, you know, I, I think after a while they may have had the Turtles, mm-hmm. although they were on White Whale originally, but they might have been on Dunhill. Temptations, there were a lot of people temptations were on there. No, not on. They weren't. They were on Motown. They were on Motown. Oh, I could have sworn they were. Yeah, on Temptations were on Motown. Oh, but, uh, but not uh, the Temptations. Uh, um, oh, Grassroots. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, the Grassroots. Sure, they were. Yeah. Well, yeah. Steve Barry production. Steve Barry was a great producer. So, you know, Howie gets. He says, you know, we have this meeting with Robert Wax, myself, and Howie, and I play him, you know, about six, seven songs, and 
in the meantime, I'm telling them jokes because that's, you know, I'm always telling jokes. See, this is where the comedy comes mm-hmm. in. Yep. <laughs> because there's more to, more to being successful than just what it is that you're trying to be successful at. People have to want to spend time with you. Mm-hmm. So knowing every joke is an advantage, you know, because uh, even if you're scared, you know, and you don't know what, and you're desperate, you can, you can rely on those jokes and people will go, hey, he's a funny guy. <laughs> so not only did it, not, I, I tell people, you want to see a miracle? I can make a miracle happen. And they go, yeah, yeah, what, show me a miracle. And I point to my nose and I say, you see, it's still in the center of my face. That's a miracle. <laughs> you may never see a bigger miracle because I was hit this way and that way. And, you know, and I grew yeah. up, I mean, I was punched the left side of my head. And no one ever got me square in the nose. So it was, uh, that's a miracle. So the comedy really helps. So Howie turns to me and Bob Wax and he says, you know, he says, you got one song here. Sounds like a hit. He says, but you got, you are funny guys. I'm going to do a deal with you. So I got signed to ABC Dunhill. And, uh, it was funny before this happened and I'm skipped something, you know, I don't know how long you want to, you can stand to hear this nonsense from me, (laughs) but, uh, but um, before I was signed, they sent me to Nashville, ABC Dunhill, because they wanted someone to hear me. And, you know, Howie wasn't in New York then. So they thought they'd send me to Nashville. First, they sent me to Cashman and West in New York. Mm-hmm. And they said, should we sign him? And they said, yeah, we'd like to produce him. And then, they, of course, they didn't want to hire Cashman and West because they didn't want to pay him. They thought they'd get a staff producer. But then they sent me to see Bob Johnston. Now, Bob Johnston produced all the, after Tom Wilson, he was Bob Dylan's producer. So they sent me down to meet Bob Johnston, and, and I remember getting him picking me up. And I guess, you know, and I lived in Nashville 35 years now, but, but I'd never been there. And I was a kid, you know, and, and they put me in this hotel, it was called the Roger Miller, now called the Maxwell House or something else. And it was one of those round hotels where every room was like a slice of the pie, you know, it was weird, really odd rooms, you know. They were kind of like pizza-shaped rooms, mm-hmm. slices of pizza-shaped rooms. And so I didn't know anybody, and he picks me up, and he's reciting these Bob Dylan words. And I'm thinking, this guy, I got nothing for this guy. <laughs> this is not happening. This guy's not going to, he's not making a record with me. He's, 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 he's memorized all of Bob's lyrics. And I'm listening, I'm going, I, I, I'm not in this world. So we do this demo. He's got Kenny Buttry on drums. He's got Charlie Daniels on guitar. Wow. I mean, I was frozen. <laughs> I couldn't, and we were in this, we, take, we go into Columbia Studio A or whatever it was, a beautiful studio. And we go, uh, you know, this is where they were cutting Elvis Presley. Maybe, no, maybe, we, no, that's right. He was at RCA Studio B. But but I was at Columbia and we and so we cut this demo and I, I never even got a copy of it, <laughs> but they passed on me. Huh. So I'm at the hotel, and this is to show you just what was going on there. So I, I'm really depressed, so I go down to the bar, and I'm sitting there drinking, and there's a guy playing in the bar, a folk singer, he's just playing, you know, a, you know, like a Martin guitar, and he's on microphone singing. Mm-hmm. And so I start listening to this guy, and I'm going, are you kidding this guy was amazing. And I'm thinking, geez, I'm in, I'm in a bar and this guy's kicking my rear end, you know? <laughs> I said, first I got to deal with Bob Dylan lyrics. And now there's a guy I never heard of in my life in the bar. So he takes a break and the bar's getting pretty empty. And, I, and so I, I waved him. He came over and sat down. And I said, man, what's your name? He said, Steve Goodman. <laughs> so, I mean... I got my rear end kicked in in Nashville. <laughs> Jeez. I definitely came home with my. He was a great guy, Steve. And it was, you know, it was funny because years later, I was and I was for many, many years very close friends with John Prine, you know, and we mm-hmm. lost him last year. But uh, you know, horrible. But John was one of the sweetest person people that ever lived. And I didn't know. I never saw Steve again after that. But Steve and John were best friends. Wow. So uh, I guess they were both from Chicago, but isn't that? It's a funny story, right? Yeah, jeez. Just, just how you know how things go. So I ended up getting signed by Howie Gilman. Um, I guess ABC gave me one more listen, and Howie signed me, and so I did an album. And I'll skip to the fact that it came out 
uh, that I wouldn't say it was relief that escaped. I'd say it escaped. You know, and uh, not long after the record came out, um, the sales department had you know the 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 deal came to a rather unceremonious end when the sales department realized my record was selling like hotcakes. <laughs> you know, three for a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, you know that was the end of that. But a great thing came out of that deal. A couple of great things came out of the deal, and I've you know I've skipped a lot in the middle of things that almost happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, Neil Bogart wanted to sign me to Buddha before the ABC deal because that was Sean on Oz label. Oh yeah. But that deal got messed up by the by Sean on Oz agent, kind of blew off Neil Bogart, which almost gave me a heart attack. So anyway, I'm jumping around. The record came out. I told you it was not happening. And I was in Park Slope in Brooklyn with a guy, and we were just kind of drinking all night. And I was very disguised. I didn't know what I was going to do. I said, my record bombed. What am I going to do, you know? And it was like 6 o'clock in the morning, and we were listening to WNEW FM, which was the mm-hmm. the yep. rock and roll station in, on FM radio in New York. Yep. And the disc jockey, it's, all of a sudden we hear a song. And I go, wait a minute. That's my song. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, Dennis Elsus, who is still on the radio in New York on the WFDU at, uh, and he's on XM, he's on XM radio too. And he's on the WFDU, I think it is up at Fordham University, which is a, one of the only free form pop, st- pop rock stations left in, in the world, let alone New York. And Dennis played Morning Star, a track to my album. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was the first time I ever heard a song of mine on the radio. You must have been thrilled. <laughs> I, was, I blew my mind, and, and, I said, and now I'm thinking, in my own way, I'm too legit to quit, you know? <laughs> so now there's no way I'm quitting. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm going to do. Now I don't have a deal, but I went back to see Cashman and West because they originally wanted to sign me. And uh, and so I signed with those guys, and it seems like almost instantly I was on A&M Records. And we did this album that had Simone on it and Meet Me on the Corner. And I covered a song called uh, Meet Me on the Corner, as I was going to just said. And that the original production was done by, guess who? Bob Johnston, mm-hmm. you know, who I met in Nashville. Yeah. And he had cut the original group that the guys that wrote it were called Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne, yes. Yeah, a, 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 a British band. And I loved the record when I heard it because, you know, I, I listened to his Bob had produced it. I said, I know this guy. Let me hear what he did. And, of course, he made a great record. And the group was, I thought, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I cut the song. We sold, you know, a few hundred thousand singles of it. And then I had this song called Simone that was a hit in a lot of markets. And and you talk about the funny stuff. I did a song that I, I was, this is a funny story. I was at a friend of mine's house one night, uh, somewhere in Long Island, I, I forget where. And we're, and I was playing my guitar, you know, I'm singing all my songs. And a guy came, and, and there was a, there was a, a, a you know, like a, a, an African-American guy sitting there at the party. There's been you know, a bunch of like 10, 15 people. And he says, hey man, can I sing one? And I said, sure. So I gave him my guitar, and he plays this song called Sweet Sassafras. And it was one of the funniest things I ever heard in my life. It was just charming. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is an unbelievable song. I said, I never heard this. I said, who, who did that? And he said, well, I wrote it. And I said, man, I'm, I'm doing a record. I, I want to cut that song. So I put it on my Yelp, on the, the Henry Gross on A&M album. Mm-hmm. I was really clever in those days. I had two albums in a row called Henry Gross. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like my name was like Rock, you know, Rock. You know, like Johnny Rock, right? Yeah, it was Henry Gross. It's not a not a name you might want to use on two albums in a row. But now it was too late to change it. So, and I didn't. I always wanted to use my dad's name. I always figured if I had a hit, I'd want his name on it, mm-hmm. which eventually happened. But anyway, so we started to get some some real good radio play, and then I did another album with Cashman West called "Plug Me Into Something," and that album. And I just have to say, and most people that know the record and grew up with it would say that that was the that was a tragedy i don't know what went on there i can't tell you what the business was that was involved but that record should have sold two million copies mm-hmm. because today it's you know people that they just they still adore it 
Yeah. And I still get letters about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, a lot. Yeah. And it's just a fantastic record. And uh, the cover was amazing. Everything about it was very spontaneous and live. And the funniest part of it was we were just about done with it. And I wrote this song. I called Terry Cashman up and I said, look, man, I got to come see you tomorrow. And I did. I went in there. And, you know, I was living in Queens. And I drove into me to his office. And I had my little hummingbird Gibson and I played him Shannon. And I said, man, we should put this on this record. And he said, no, no, let's wait till the next one. And he, you know, he was a pretty astute song man, Terry Cashman, because he and, and uh, he had written with Gene Castilli, had written Sunday Will Never Be the Same, the Spanky and our gang. Yes, yeah. So, he, you know, he was, a, he was a good songwriter. And he heard that song and Shannon, and he thought, uh-huh. So they opened their own label, and they paid A&M quite a bit of money to get me off the label. Now, we had a huge hit on it. I will always believe that had we had that hit on A&M, that they would have been able to do more with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We yep. sold millions of records anyway, but I believe that the next single, Springtime Mama, which sold almost a million copies, would have sold a couple of million and been as big or bigger than Shannon. Mm-hmm. Most people that were familiar with the situation felt that. But that's the hazards of the court. Right, yeah. And these are the stories that everybody will tell you, you know, Everybody will tell you about a building they could have bought in 1961 that's worth $300 million. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, it's just the way it is. Yeah. So you have to, as I, as I say in my song, Lucky Me, uh, in a world of give and take, I take what's given. Yeah. yeah. And so I went on to do a couple of albums for life songs, three actually. One that was on CBS, or Sony, or CBS at the time, became Sony later on. And uh, then... Then uh, I went to Capitol Records for an album and uh, worked with a great producer called Bobby Columbi. Wasn't the greatest match in the world because he was really, a, he was in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He was their drummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's a, he's a great musician and he's a great song guy. He's a you know, lovely guy, but he wasn't a rock and roller, really. Our, our sensibilities were very different. And the guys that he booked to play on my records were he booked Terry Bozio to play the drums. Terry Bozio is a brilliant drummer, played with Frank Zappa. But he wasn't the guy that I wanted on, that was the right guy for my record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I wanted, you know, I would have wanted a guy like uh, Jim Gordon, you know, mm-hmm. before he had problems. You know, somebody that, I was looking for someone like that. Yeah. It's just not a match made in heaven. So I continued to have odd luck. But I still continue to write good songs and get record deals. I mean, today, I, I, you know, one of these days I'm going to do a record called Seeds and Stems and recut some of those songs that I felt were never recorded properly at the time. And then the world changed. And suddenly, you know, people were buying little Tascam and Fostex 24-track machines that you could buy for, you know, two, three thousand dollars and you could buy these little, you know, little boards, you know, you all of a sudden, you didn't need to go to a studio where you had, a, you know, had 300 grand worth of equipment. Right, yeah. And so, and Gary Talent from the E Street Band opened the studio with Bucky Baxter, who played for Dylan for a while. He was one of my dearest friends. We just lost Bucky this year. He, he died tragically. And, uh, and Gary's still a dear friend of mine, and they had a studio they opened in Nashville called Moondog. And a lot of us, we're descending. I mean, Bucky came from Virginia. Gary, of course, is from New Jersey. He's playing with Springsteen his whole life. And, uh, and you know, I was from Brooklyn. And all, the, all these out-of-towners were settling in Nashville. Because, you know, when Dylan came to New York, the, there was the whole Greenwich Village scene. Yeah, right. And you could rent an apartment on Bleecker Street for $50 a month. You know, now you had Dustin Hoffman living on Washington Square Park. In a, you know, in a, in a million dollar brownstone, you know? <laughs> so, so people couldn't, you know, artists couldn't gather in New York anymore. And it was very expensive to live there. And you never saw anybody. Everyone was separate. One guy's living in Queens, one guy's in Staten Island, one guy's in Brooklyn. You know, people are in Manhattan. 
Northmen, you know, one guy's up in 96th Street, another guy's in the village. So, you know, it was just very tough. And then I went to Nashville. And that's where we will leave off with part one of our interview with Henry Gross. He's heading to Nashville. We'll find out what happens then. And uh, just a lot more. It's just so amazing, the stuff that he's done and the people he's met and his music and everything else. So that's coming up in the next episode of On Screen to Beyond. So get ready for that. Also, the second part of our summer movie preview right here on On Screen and Beyond. So I hope you'll join us for that. And that's it. That's a wrap for this episode of On Screen and Beyond. So until next time, when do we once again take you on screen and beyond? I'm Brian Zimrak. Take care. Thank you.